Hey there, welcome to In Full Color, a podcast on race, community, and justice. I'm Taylor McGee, your host, and today I'm sitting down with my friend Erin Okendo, a mixed Filipino-American activist and recent college graduate. Erin shares how they've embraced their heritage and culture and the connection to Filipino liberation. We also talk about the long-lasting effects of colonialism and what prison abolition actually means. Hope you enjoy. All right, so to kick things off, can you please tell me who you are, what you do, and how do you identify racially and or ethnically? Yeah, absolutely. So my name is Erin Okindo. My pronouns are they, them. Um, And I just graduated um, from undergrad. I received an American Studies um, major degree and an English minor. And the um, kind of brunt of my studies... I would say fell into three categories that often overlap as these types of things do. Um, But I did do a good bit of uh, multiracial narratives in literature. Um, Mm. I studied and worked a lot in the space of abolishing the prison industrial complex. Um, And then also my senior thesis ended up being uh, a visual culture of a multimedia um, cross-national movement for Philippine liberation um, performed by uh, young people and students in the diaspora in the United States. Um, Oh, and I guess uh, racially I identify as um, mixed biracial, um, half Filipino, half white. So I would consider myself a mixed Filipino American. Awesome. What has it been like for you growing up Filipino and white? Um, whether that was growing up in Nashville or when you were in Atlanta um, as a person of the diaspora and as someone who's like now you occupied this space as an academic? Yeah, that's a fantastic question. (laughs) My father is Filipino. He's from the Philippines. Um, He immigrated to the U.S. in the 90s. um, And my mom is, you know, Blonde hair, blue eyes, <laughs> sweetie from Illinois. <laughs> um, but she had two sons before she met my dad, um, okay. which means that my nuclear family is, you know, three to two uh, white people and people of color. So yeah. um, I think not only, you know, thinking about being in a white space geographically, but also within my own family. Mm. Um There was an interesting, I don't want to say divide because it makes it sound like I didn't have a connection with, you know, my white family members, which I do. You know, my mom's the closest person to me in the whole world. She's my best friend. Um, Mm. But there is a certain way of living. There's a certain way of existing in a white space that um, my dad and I could connect over that, you know, my other family members and I couldn't. um, Mm. And I think one of the most interesting ways that that really manifested itself was, I think, um, I don't know if it's an American thing, it may just be a a global thing, but people have this obsession with being able to understand, like, ownership over your children, like, who's whose parent, like, who's actually related to Mm. you, like, Mm -hmm. constantly, 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 people just felt so entitled to figuring out how I ended up the way I ended up, you know? Mm, yep, yes. <laughs> um, 
if I'm like just with my mom, people would be like, oh, like, you know, is your kid adopted? You know, like unprompted (laughs) things like that. Or if, you know, my dad and I, you know, we're out to dinner with my mom and my two brothers without asking, you know, the the staff splitting the check, you know, between, mm. you know, it's me and my dad on one and, and you know, kind of like subtle wow. things that it's not necessarily like, oh, classic white people. It's just an interesting, like, people feel the need to really siphon you into your family in kind yeah. of cases of uh, like what makes sense to me visually mm. um, and I think it was really really hard for people to fathom the fact that I could be just as related to this woman I did not look like very much um, as I was to this man that you know I did apparently look like a lot and I think that you know skin color had so much to do with that so the family is one interesting piece of that mm-hmm. um, but I think on a you know larger scale in Nashville I not only grew up in a space that was predominantly white and that's to be expected, um, but I also grew up in a space that truly didn't have Filipinos. Um, Mm. And I think that's what was more of a factor in kind of affecting how I grew up interacting with my culture than anything else. Um, Not necessarily that I was surrounded by white people all the time, but more so that like the people of color I was surrounded with were not people who shared my race. Mm. Um, And so culturally, any and everything I would get would either be from my dad himself um, or from like the internet. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Which is really interesting because like still, even on the internet, it's like, Filipinos don't have a whole lot of the spotlight. Um, It's a lot of other East Asian cultures. Um, And so what I ended up doing is kind of throughout elementary, middle, and high school, starting to kind of understand myself and identify more as just Asian um, Mm. rather than specifically Filipino because it allowed me to lump myself into groups with people that like I, you know, personally kind of didn't feel like we had anything in common, but it was, it was something, it was a category that I could put myself in so that I could create a community for myself. Um, Did that work super well? Not really. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Um, Was it foolproof? Absolutely not. Um, (laughs) But I think it's, it was kind of initially how I, how I managed it um, was like, I'm an Asian person. I'm an Asian person. So that means that I'm going to, you know, I'm going to love boba. I'm going to, you know, I do. But like, <laughs> I didn't it's at the time. It's not your culture. Right. And I didn't at the time when I was really pretending to. Um, yeah. But it's, a, you know, it's kind of like I almost threw myself into a, the stereotype, like this amalgamated stereotype of this category of culture is that, as I mentioned kind of at the beginning of all this, uh, you know, my actual culture was sort of marginalized from from the beginning. Um, Mm. So I had this kind of weird pseudo assimilation into not even white culture, but into like this sort of white idea of Asian culture, which did not include Filipinos. Yeah. Um, So then when I, you know, moved to Atlanta for school, it was the most diverse space I've ever been in. Um, And that was awesome. That was awesome. Uh, I think I imagined for myself that there would be a bunch of Filipinos 
around just ready to take me in. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and that did not happen. <laughs> um, but, you know, honestly, people who were there um, were people who were really passionate about addressing issues of racial injustice. Um, And I think that was kind of my introduction, honestly, to approaching my own culture academically, was Mm. watching other people do it with their own cultures. Um, So I more so started to find a community with, again, not people who shared a race with me, but people who kind of shared a mission to understand their race that was Mm. similar to... um, or started kind of becoming an example for me to start my mission to understand my race and my culture. Um, And that's what led me to my abolition work um, and eventually kind of what led me to uh, American studies, realizing that I could kind of, you know, take charge um, of what I wanted to study. And that if nobody else here was going to do it, then I could. And then I did, you know? (laughs) Yeah. I was pretty proud of it, so. (laughs) Yeah, I totally feel that. Like, as someone who has grown up in Atlanta, like this, I feel like this is somewhat objective, Mm -hmm. but Mm -hmm. Atlanta is still one of the most diverse places I've been. That said, it, I think it mirrors a lot of other, like, metropolitan places of that it's a certain kind Mm -hmm. of Mm -hmm. diverse you're not going to get the same kind of diversity that you would in like LA or New York. It's interesting to see how like where people ended up and how that there are these kind of cultural and racial and ethnic hubs. And when you're saying um, how, even though like you didn't really identify with like, other Asians in your community that was the space that you could occupy in some form right um, and I think when you like occupy this middle ground of race ethnicity culture and nationality it it's easier to connect with this another group of others and that right. are naturally like somewhat ambiguous as I meet more people who are multiracial there there's this kind of like thread that happens right of if you don't if you can't find your in group you find another one that like fits enough of like you can like survive in this space is it ideal no does it actually like help you in your identity formation but it's what you have to do and yeah no absolutely and I think you were kind of touching too on, I think, people's desperation to just put people in categories. Yes. Um, and I I understand the merit of that in social justice spaces and in organized yes. spaces. Absolutely. Because yes. I, I think that the best way to get things done is to be really specific about what's mm-hmm. wrong and really specific about what you want. Um, and I think that does require categorization in some For ways. Sure. But I also think like, just in casual ways of life, there is kind of this underlying pressure to be very easily definable. Um, yes. Well, not even easily definable. There's only one way that your identity is supposed to fit somewhere. Right. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah, exactly. Like, if you can't be clocked, then, you know, 
what's the point? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's like, well, okay, come on. <laughs> yeah, literally. Yeah. Yeah. How did you come to identify as Filipino American? Right. I, that's such a good question because, you know, I think it's so easy to kind of boil things down to like, oh yeah, my dad's Filipino, my mom's white. So, you know, I love rice and mashed potatoes (laughs) equally. Uh, Like, no, (laughs) No. it's so much more complicated than that because um, I think for me, so much of it was being able to tie my identity to liberation struggles, one. Mm. Um, And two, also uh, sort of recognizing the trauma that I really had to work through that was generational. Um, Yeah. I think think when people talk about their struggles a lot with – maybe being racially ambiguous Mm -hmm. Uh, the first this at least was sort of the flow of my mindset for me my first thing was like well let me you know try to rack my brain about what specific types of racism have I endured Um, Mm. which you know happens um, yeah and is like so real and I think unpacking that is very valid but I was like I just feel like the way in which I feel a personal tumult about my identity goes so much further than the things that people have said to me or done to me or said mm. about me um, mm-hmm. and why is that why do I feel so so uh like mixed up about being mixed when I <laughs> right <laughs> um, when I feel like you know in some ways, it hasn't been as big of a deal as I feel about it internally. And I kind of had to mm. come to grips with, especially after learning more history about all of it, of like, you know, I, there's so much of me, there's so much colonizer in my blood. <laughs> yeah. And that's traumatic. Um, mm. You know, it was, it was traumatic to find out that my last name doesn't have indigenous roots. Um, mm. it, it's, it's, such a such a wild thing such a wild thing to find out um that's kind of indescribable but when you you know talk about living in a space that you don't fit in but living in a space that had such a a huge impact on your uh on you ending up there in a way you Mm, know mm -hmm. The United mm-hmm. States is everything about where I am right now, but the United States is also so much about where I come from yeah. and where my dad comes from. And grappling with the the resentment I have toward that, but also the identity that I hold in it, you know, mm. my mom's ancestors were on the Mayflower, you know? <laughs> yeah. Um, I think coming to my, like, really embrace my Filipino-American identity really um came a lot from from processing that trauma and allowing myself to admit that that was trauma um Mm. and then also recognizing okay here are struggles that I've really thrown myself into in the United States here are the larger things that have created those struggles right so Mm. when we think about the present industrial complex and we think about slavery and racism and then we think about capitalism and imperialism and we think about colonialism and then we say oh my god that is what happened to the philippines too Mm. um you kind of start to realize like you know all of these kind of parasitic 
roots that I've been talking about come from the same mm. hub. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then you feel really connected to all of those struggles because you recognize they're coming from the same, mm. same people, essentially. Mm. Um, so, you know, not to position my identity always in opposition to something that's horrible, but <laughs> <laughs> I think it really empowered me to recognize that, you know, what I'm involved in here and what's in my blood does not make me an alien in the motherland. It makes me mm. a part of that story of struggle that's common among every part of my life. Mm. Yes. Oh, yes. I, <laughs> I, th- I want to highlight something you said about how there's so much like colonialism in your blood. Mm. I think... I don't want to turn this into like a personal anecdote, but no, go ahead. <laughs> um, family history has been very central to me. It's the reason why I mm. predominantly identify more as black. I don't think I'll ever solely identify as white because I have, I cannot occupy the same kind of whiteness that white mm. people expect me to be. Yeah. Um, but so much of that was learning about my history and the struggles that my people went through of learning that my last name is from the white slave owning family. Right. And one of the acts of liberation, they changed the spelling of it once they were freed. And that, so Mm -hmm. the spelling of my last name now is not how the white family spelled it. And my skin color is a product of centuries of non-consensual or consensual interracial couplings right and so when you are a person of color colonialism like you said it's in your blood and so when when you do like dna tests of like there is no african-american person in america who was 100 percent african that's just not how it works i think that's the case for so many um ethnicities and nationalities that that is just the it's the sad reality of it and i think i would love to hear more about how ethnicity comes into play because you have because since you were saying how you didn't realize that your name was not indigenous right um until you started learning your history mm-hmm. um yeah yeah i I think that, again, in so many ways, and obviously I'm so biased, <laughs> but like <laughs> this is one of the many ways that the Philippines is just such like a such an anomaly um, in the greater kind of conversation about race, ethnicity, mm. culture, nationality. Um, in every category, there's some stipulation with like, well, but the Philippines, um, <laughs> and I think you know, ethnicity is no exception from that. Um, you know, I, I know that on, it's so funny because I say on my Filipino side, I have Spanish, I have Chinese, I have, yeah. you know, Filipino, <laughs> I have all of these things. Um, but those are all like encapsulated into my Filipino side. Mm. Um, and that's kind of like how, how I've seen it and imagined it. Um, I think one thing about sort of the self-discovery of like, what parts am I made up of? Like where, mm. where did everyone come from to come together and end up making me? Um, yeah. I think like a lot of that came late for me. Um, 
one, I didn't know many, many of these things until I was at least 21. Um, wow. You know, and I'm coming up on 23 now. So it's really, I've only had this information for like a year and a half. Mm-hmm. Um, I got to connect with my grandmother on my dad's side um, over January of 2019. So the beginning of 2019, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was an incredibly healing experience for me um, in so many ways. One, I hadn't seen her in 17 years. Um, mm. So she had been in the Philippines all this time. She's a very old, small, frail lady. Um, and I wasn't sure if I was ever going to get to see her um, again after that one time when I was literally like four years old, <laughs> um, mm. three or four. Um, and so when I did get to see her, it was like, mm-hmm. um, it was a shocking relief to me to see mm. her. Um And one of the things that we did was sit down with her and really try to parse out the family tree. Um, And it's so funny, I think, because, you know, I'm sure this is a thing in other cultures, but Filipinos are very big about, like, calling people your cousin, no matter how they're related to you or if they're related to you. Yeah. Um, (laughs) So it was a lot of, like, am I actually related to this person? Yeah. <laughs> yes, you are, but they're your like second cousin, like thrice removed. Yeah. And I was it like, gets complicated oh. real quick. Yeah. And I'm like, okay, cool. Um, why do I call them aunt? And they're like, ah, eh, she's your aunt. It's fine. Um <laughs> <laughs> so kind of really parsing out how all of those things worked. Um, but also, you know, um kind of working through, oh, you know, my great great grandfather was chinese and mm. the um the the church bishop i don't know the technical name for it i'm so sorry I'm you're, good. you're good <laughs> um made him change his name to mm. you know something more spanish sounding so that he wouldn't you know be passing down a chinese last name wow um so you know he went from I, I don't remember what the Chinese last name was, uh, to Vasquez. Um, wow. <laughs> like, I, I know, right? It, That's it's a jump. <laughs> it's quite a jump. You know, when it's like, oh, we want people to think you're Filipino, so let's give you a Spanish last name. You know, <laughs> you know, says, says the Catholic Church. It's, it's wild. It's, there's so many layers to that, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, there's so many layers to that conversation. Yep. And I don't know all the details of it. And I probably got some things wrong in there and I'm sure when my parents listen to this they'll be like Aaron (laughs) (laughs) Um, but I think you know from like an ethnic standpoint it wasn't necessarily that important to me to find out what parts of my quote unquote Filipino side were not indigenously Filipino Um, Mm. so much as it was important to me that it's so weird because I think I had an obsession with it being the interesting half of me Mm. um, for a really long time and so therefore I wanted it to be intact in a way Um, and I kind of avoided learning anything that maybe would make it not intact um, Mm. or indigenous in a way Um, because I think Mm -hmm. you know on my on my mom's side, on my white side, there, you know, there's the conversation of like, well, I'm, you know, 87 different European races and it's like, okay, (laughs) cool Um, but, you know, uh, 
it's it's not the same it's not the same <laughs> mm-hmm. it's not it's not the same type of discovery and i think it's a completely different level of stakes almost mm-hmm. um of like i know that it is important to you that we have and this may I'm not trying to like do a roast on my mom. I promise. I love her so, so much. Um, but I think she was often kind of talking to me about like, I really want you to know about the history of our side of the family, of my side of the family, um, about the parts of us that, you know, are Native American and, you know, the, the parts that are Irish. And, you know, my first two names are like the most Irish names that any person could ever have, um, which, you know, I was given because... Uh, they knew I wasn't going to look Irish. Oh, no. <laughs> so they were like, let's make up for it. Um, oh, no. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I think my my mom was often like, I feel like you have so much more interest in the history of your Filipino side than of your white side. Mm. Um, and I know that she was like genuinely kind of hurt by that because she wants she wants to be important to me, and she is. Um, mm. And that history is important to me in a way. Um but it is not an identify. It's not an identity finding um, yes. discovery to make. Yeah, it is. Like yes, it's a piece of who you are, but it's not like something that is a confounding variable in right. how you personally identify. And it is more so a confirmation of things that I was taught in school, literally for twelve plus years. Yeah. And so it's kind of like a oh cool where that you know. We're those people we learned about in school. And we're those people we learned about in school. And we're those people we learned about in school. But when I, you know, delve into my Filipino side, I'm like, wait, what? Wait, mm. I've never heard this before. Wait, are you serious? You know? Yeah. That happened? Yeah. That's where this comes from? Mm-hmm. That's my last name? That's a completely different learning experience than saying, oh, yeah, 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 cool. I recognize that from my history yeah. book. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's, it's... The stakes are just so different. Could you talk more about what Filipino liberation actually is? Because I think that's something a lot of people probably don't know about. Yeah, absolutely. So I think there is... Um, it is obviously a, a very loaded question that <laughs> could mm-hmm. have an answer that could go on for days and days, especially since people really define Philippine liberation differently um, amongst themselves. But from my perspective, um, the Philippines is in a very interesting place in the world um, because it's often found itself kind of either the exception or in the margins of every category it's kind of dropped into, right? Mm-hmm. There is a famous book by Ocampo uh, called The Latinos of Asia. We're often called the Black people of Asia. There's so many like odd monikers to sort of differentiate us from mm. um, other East Asian people, which is um, so, so interesting. Um, I think Ali Wong calls it jungle Asian. Like there's a million wow. names for it. Um, so that's kind of one aspect of how... Filipinos find themselves kind of in the margins of the greater conversation about Asians and Asian Americans, specifically in the U.S. Um, But when I talk about liberation, I'm really talking about the longstanding history of tyranny, of fascism, and colonialism and its after effects 
um, on Philippine soil and kind of ingrained in Filipino culture that sort of spans all over the diaspora, right? Um, so the Philippines was under colonial rule by Spain for over 500 years. Oh my God. Um, yeah, and it was awful. <laughs> and I think, uh, you know, so many things when people talk about kind of like, oh, yeah, uh, Filipinos have so many things in common with Mexican folks and, and Spanish folks. And well, there's like absolutely a reason for that, right? Um, mm -hmm. There's a lot of Spanish ingrained into our national language. Um, my last name is even a permutation of a Spanish name. Mm. Um, which is not something I found out until I was doing research for my senior thesis. Oh my gosh. Um, yeah, it's really, it's really wild. And the roots of it go so, so deep. So there's a lot of pain um, and a lot of lost indigenous culture that has resulted from that 500 year long struggle. Um, and I say struggle because there was never a point at which there wasn't a resistance. And at the very end of the 1800s, right, there's the Spanish-American War. Um, and America has sort of built up this reputation, right, of being kind of the land of, you know, the American dream. And also uh, America is also trying to establish itself as one of the great powers of the world. And the way to do that at the time and following the steps of Britain and following in the steps of Spain and other European countries is to colonize. Mm -hmm. um, but the U.S. was like, we don't know how to do that without maintaining our narrative of being a democratic society <laughs> that's like dedicated to people being able to self-govern, right? Like that's our whole mm -hmm. shtick. And so the Philippines and Cuba kind of became their guinea pigs for how do we colonize without being called colonizers, right? Wow, yeah. Um, so the, you know, the Spanish-American War ends. Uh, the Philippines is like, oh my gosh, awesome. Thank you so much. <laughs> you know, <laughs> we fought alongside you um, at Manila Bay. You know, we're so ready to be free and we're so ready to self-govern and we're so ready to finally be our own country for the first time in over 500 years, right? Mm -hmm. And America was like, well, it's so interesting that you say that <laughs> <laughs> because that's not really what we had in mind. Um, and there's seven years of struggle that ensue uh, after that, but the Philippines is technically in the United States name. Um, but essentially oh, what wow. the U.S. does is they, I like to think of it in terms of kind of like a, an unwilling adoption, right? So they say like, mm. we're going to take you under our wing. We're going to give you, you know, the things that you need to sort of get set up um, as a democratic society. And by that, I mean truly like a pawn of the U.S. growth machine. Um <laughs> And that was met with a lot of struggle. Um, and the organizations that sort of led that struggle right at the turn of the century there have evolved um, over many, many years over the past century as um, the U.S. control has, uh, you know, lightened up. And then in World War II, when the Japanese took over um, the Philippines as well, there's so many moments in history where it's just different countries passing the Philippines from, mm. you know, one power to another. And the Philippines consistently, every single time, the people saying, well, let us have it, you know, it's ours. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and everyone's saying, essentially, you're not ready, you're not ready, you're not ready. Um, mm. The Philippines finally gains independence in um, the early 1940s. And uh, while that's great in name, those you know, after effects and those roots of colonialism and the instability that's caused by kind of all the imperialist powers that have just sucked all these resources mm. out of this country. And also really, I, I would say, um, inserted a lot of 
cultural parasites into yeah. people. Um, it was just a breeding ground for fascist governments throughout the 1900s as well. Mm. Um, so we had a lot of different types of corruption that were always, always met with people's revolutions, mm. um, which is one of like the most amazing things about the Filipino people, right? Like just years and years and years of never ending struggle and they don't give up, <laughs> um, mm. which I, you know, I love so much. But now we're in a space, right, where we used to have kind of a an apathetic elitist leader that let the wage gap or um, the, the wealth gap really expand to dangerous levels um, that kind of fostered a, a rampant, honestly, drug problem in the country. Mm. Um, and in very similar narratives to the United States, a leader comes and says, well, I am down to business. I'm not like these other politicians. <laughs> I'm hardcore, um, very Trump-like except, and his name is Duterte, um, except with this added element of violence toward mm. people he's deeming as criminals. Um, so essentially criminalizing peasants, criminalizing people who live in slums and urban areas, criminalizing um, peasant workers, basically uh, any of kind of the working class of the Philippines is now in this really dangerous space. Um, and Duterte has been in power um, for quite a while now, um, a little bit longer than I believe Trump's been in power. And of course, they're buddy-buddy. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, I think a lot of people view Philippine liberation first as ousting Duterte, right? And that is one big mission. But I think as we know, you know, as, as I'm sure you know, as a parallel to yeah. You know, we don't just want Trump out of office, but we also want all of these other things, mm. um, all of these other kind of really toxic roots that have spread throughout, you know, the culture and government and every single facet of our country. We want those out as well. That requires um, a complete overhaul of the system, you know, in so many ways, really paralleled to the state of the, um, of the U.S., which is so interesting. Yeah, for sure. I think it's also like it's easy to forget how like terrorizing colonial is and even mm -hmm. after like the end of colonialism and like that kind of rule right. is over there's so many lasting effects and I think that's why you get so many diasporas and I think it's somewhat parallel to people of the African diaspora and mm -hmm. just how trying gaining independence but not really having it and not really able to have a certain level of freedom that you actually want to have for your country because it's just not there because it's been torn apart by years right. and years of corruption and fascism and all of these unhelpful rules. Unhelpful is a very gentle word, um, <laughs> but the, the, the things you need for your country aren't going to happen because of what has endured for hundreds and hundreds of years. Absolutely. Um, how did your experiences learning more about Filipino liberation translate into your work with criminal justice reform and police abolition and the prison industrial complex? Yeah. Um, I think to put it very simply, human caging is a global issue. Human caging is a historical issue. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, it is everywhere. It's ingrained into every single culture. Um, and, you know, it, it permeates every single facet of everything you do. Um, mm. It is 
it's a psychological issue, like truly. Um, and I say human caging to make, honestly, to make people more uncomfortable um, with yes, incarceration. Yes, do it. Yes. Um, because I think people are often like, yeah, I think we should offer more things to, you know, people in prison and like I think that they should be able to get college classes and it's all these like kind of great things that you're inching there you're inching there you're getting there you're getting there and then you get to someone that who did something that you really 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 hate and don't like at all and does need to be held accountable for what they've done and then you say let them rot in jail and then that conversation about abolition goes out the window for five minutes um and that's a really really hard conversation to have and i know i know it is and i don't think anybody has a good clear-cut concise answer to that but i think Mm. it's a huge part of the liberation struggle of like what do we do when we hate someone hate 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 someone and in this case i'm talking about the dirty here um when we absolutely hate his guts but one of the reasons that we hate his guts is because he's caging people right Mm. he's putting people in these, you know, 100 by 100 cells and overpacking it by 18 times, right? Because he's making people sleep in puddles in cages. Mm. Um, because he's, you know, having death squads extrajudicially shoot people on the street for being involved with drug deals. Like, mm. you can't, in good conscience, say that you want someone to rot in jail because they're forcing people to rot in jail. Um, yeah. And I think Literally. that's like trying to grapple with that first um was kind of the first connection i made between the two right mm. um, of like how do i have a full-scale revolution against this douchebag like when i don't believe in caging humans right um yeah. but what it is is it, it is a global necessity right to completely overhaul the way we understand punishment the way we understand um like societal resources the way we understand fascism and tyranny um and also the way we understand like reparations retribution all of those things Mm -hmm. um so i think for me i was watching someone with so much power murder and cage and leave my people destitute right Mm. and you cannot help but recognize that the same thing has been happening with and without you know a face Mm. Mm -hmm. to people of color in the united states um Mm. and in an indirect way to all people everywhere yeah totally i think a lot of the kind of dialogue happening in the world right now has so much to do with just it goes beyond systemic racism right like it it is a complete lack of respect and understanding of what human decency is not even like fair treatment but just decency um towards people of color and the, the system is working because that mm-hmm. is how it was designed to mm-hmm. function. Mm-hmm. So yes, it's perfect and there's no problems with it and we're doing it just fine. And it, I think, and you've been, I mean, you've always been kind of vocal about this issue, but I think especially in the past couple of months of 
people finally being I don't know how people weren't aware of before I think people were just blindly ignoring it yeah because it wasn't like not in their face um but trying to understand like what does it mean to abolish the police what does it mean Mm -hmm. to achieve the prison system Mm -hmm. and I think there there's a line of like between like reform and abolition and we've tried to reform for so long Mm -hmm. and strides were made and we we have but that is kind of like the the state of the nation that we are in right now mm-hmm. of we have tried to reform things it has not worked clearly mm-hmm. because we are still in these situations and that the only option is abolition it's not impossible mm-hmm. it, there are so many other examples of other communities and other nations that have gone through the same struggle and have gone through abolitionary processes and it, it's it's attainable it's it's the same thing of like there's so many other political issues attached to this right of like oh like free college for all and like universal right. health care of like right. these are not like intangible ideas of like here's an example of another nation that is serving like the ideals of whiteness mm-hmm. but recognizing hmm, we have people who aren't white in our country and accomplishing this and so i think a lot of people find the word abolition scary yeah and feel like it's not accomplishable sure and what do you see abolition look like in contemporary 21st century america yeah. and in the philippines as well right right i think some people find abolition scary because they cannot fathom their everyday life looking different than it actually does um yeah. And so the idea of changing a structure that feels so integral to the processes of like everyday safety um, mm. and everyday operations, which is, you know, problematic, but it's, it's scary to say like, we're going to rip out something that feels so, uh, so integral and like, so, so key to this whole wheel turning, right? Mm. Um but I think, you know, one of my favorite ways to explain this um, comes from the longstanding abolitionist group started by Angela Davis um, and some other awesome folks, Critical Resistance. Um, mm. the, the model of abolition is not just getting rid of prisons, getting rid of police, and then having like a whole, you know, purge situation, I guess, where anybody can do whatever they want. Like, it's not that's not the situation. And I think most people are kind of wising up to the fact that that's not what abolition is, especially in the past few months. Right. Yeah. Um, But I would, you know, posit the dismantle change build model, which is, you know, dismantling the systems that already exist, um, changing the things that cannot go away at the moment. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And then building those tangible alternatives to the systems that you're dismantling so that at one point you are able to phase from one to the other. Um, mm. I think the the really common uh, like abolitionist sort of conversation that's been going around is like abolition is about changing the conditions that our society live in so that we don't like have the need for mass incarceration, right? Yeah. Um, and I think that that's like definitely a huge part of it for sure. But it's also making sure, right, that we're dismantling the systems that are we are trying to replace, right, with those mm-hmm. 
those improved public health conditions, those improved social services, that we're dismantling those so that those services don't become exclusionary. Mm. Um, and that's what you have to become like so careful about is like you can't just throw money into something that's only serving a certain population of people. You also have to be tearing down the alternative that you're throwing people of color into, right? Yeah. Um, because otherwise, what you're going to have is like a really awesome, robust public health and or you know social services system that only services white people, only services mm. certain areas. Mm-hmm. Um, it's going to mutate into that unless you're actively setting your eyes on truly abolishing um yourself of prisons and of police and so uh, i think when people talk about reform they're you know often talking about like let's make conditions better let's you know let's change the way that we do this so that fewer people end up in prison so that only the bad people end up in prison and that just always that just never works like you said before it just never ever works um and so i think you know I think reforms are necessary because, and only because, there are people in cages right now. Like, as we speak, there are people in a building who cannot leave the building. And that's the least horrible thing about the situation that they're in. Mm -hmm. Right? Mm -hmm. The fact that they can't leave the building is the least terrible thing about the situation they're in. Mm-hmm. And that is the only reason why I'm like, yeah, let's go gung-ho on reforms. But if your reform doesn't have the larger scope of this is on the path to dismantling the system that I'm changing right now. This mm-hmm. is on the path to abolition. This is on the path to completely changing the way we understand crime, completely changing the way we understand punishment, completely under, like changing the way we understand public services. Then it's not, it's for not, you know, it's, yeah. it's creating a reform so that you don't have to get people out of there. And yep. my number one priority is to get people out of there. Yeah, I, I, there's an author, Kelly Lytle Hernandez. Um, she teaches at UCLA. She wrote this awesome book um, called City of Inmates. It's, if you want to talk about history, I don't know how she does it. She pours over 400 years of history in this like super readable book. Um, mm. And it's awesome. I highly recommend it to truly anybody who is trying to get a backstory on what incarceration is. But her um, really awesome quote that she opens up the book with is mass incarceration is mass elimination. Um, Mm. and as a visual culture scholar myself, like I think about this so much in terms of the visual, right? Um, I think people can talk about people who are in prison all the time without ever having actually seen them. And I think some people can go and see it and experience it and then come out and still advocate for people to go to jail. Um, because it's like a tourism thing, you know, I was part of a class where we went into a prison and had class with incarcerated women and it's so easy to say like well you know these women are having a class with us it's awesome i'm gonna you know be pen pals with these people and leave it at that um and then be like i'm such a good person because i'm interacting with a person who's in prison but it's like that's not the point that's not the point like get them out of there (laughs) yeah (laughs) that's kind of you know that like that's what really kind of uh i don't want to curse in here really mess with my head right um was me being like, I'm going here to like, you know, have playtime, let's read a book together with this person. And then I get to leave and she doesn't. And yep. that's so messed up. <laughs> and that's like step one. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, but you know, when you think about it visually, mass incarceration is mass elimination. It is a system by which we're able to remove people from places where we don't want them and take them out of sight and out of mind. And while that exists, it's always going to work that way. Yeah. Because, like, we don't, 
like we don't have a, a an object permanence for people we don't know. It just doesn't work that way. Mm. You know, if a person you don't know is out of sight, they're out of mind. Like, yeah, I cannot even physically fathom the number of people in this country who are currently in a cage. It's like incalculable. It's, it's 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 practically incalculable, and it's I cannot visualize it, and therefore I cannot care for it in the way that I want to, yeah. right? So the only reason or the only way that you can truly care for a person and implement those, you know, uh, systems by which you can start reducing, you know, I'm using this, this language that people are using right now, start mm -hmm. reducing the necessity for incarceration is if mm -hmm. you have the people that you're trying to no longer incarcerate right in your face. The perspective of humanizing conflict and humanizing a system hmm. right like it, it it's so easy to just view this as oh this is a systemic problem mm -hmm. that has not been solved and we're gonna fix it mm -hmm. and not recognizing that there's real people and how who have real lives who have real stories and that life has been taken away from them right that like you were saying like they cannot leave this building and i can but i think people are only watching 13 mm -hmm. and saying that they stand for ending mass incarceration like that's it and so what are some more resources that are not in the mainstream that are equally as important and need to be um consumed in some kind of way but also what are some actionable steps that everyday people can take to get on the same path that you and I are on towards abolition. I think if people really want to dig in and take the next step, there is countless amounts of research um, that's presented in really tangible ways um, that people can take hold of. I think one of the first couple places I would tell people to go to is um, the Critical Resistance website. Um, I think people should search for a world without prisons. It's a really great movement of people um that are really dedicated to you know imagining um what it would look like to not have prisons uh, and and really mm -hmm. what that would encapsulate um i think that people should follow uh black creators i think you should follow no white saviors on instagram i think you should yes. follow um the incarcerated workers organizing committee i'm specifically following the atlanta one but wherever you are um you know, follow who you can, uh, follow no more, no more prisons on Instagram, just start imbibing um, kind of this more palatable information first, right, from um, Black organizers and organizers of color who are doing the work on the ground wherever they are. Um, mm -hmm. I think you should read City of Inmates by Kelly Lytle Hernandez, um, From Black Lives Matter to Black Liberation by Kianga Yamada-Taylor. Um, I think you should read everything Angela Davis has ever written because I think people love touting her as kind of like a, you know, a symbol of racial justice, but she's an abolitionist. She's part of critical resistance, you know, oh, she, yeah. she had ties to the communist party and, you know, Black Panther is like, you know, she's way more legit and down than I think a lot of people give her credit for. Um, so I, you know, I think you should always, always keep an eye on her. Um, Ruth Wilson Gilmore, Golden Gulag. Um, she has another book coming out. I can't remember the name of. Um, uh, Policing the Planet, which is an anthology. Um, Policing Los Angeles by Max Felker Cantor. 
just so, so, so <laughs> many things I could, I could put out here. Um, you know, consult your local incarcerated workers organizing committee, your local abolitionist groups and find out what are the hotlines for, you know, de-escalating certain situations? What are your community resources look like? What are some non-police um, phone numbers you can call um, mm -hmm. in times of escalated situations? And start practicing that. Start practicing not inviting the police into your communities, mm. right? Because that's when, that's when shit goes down. Um, yep. Abolition is possible. Abolition is feasible. Abolition is what needs to happen. And uh, I saw this awesome tweet that was like, if policing and prisons actually prevented crime, you know, and made, made places safer, the United States would be the safest place in the country. Ooh. And we know that it's not, right? say it like it is you know so like however you need to hear it <laughs> i don't know if me saying it's wrong it's wrong it's wrong it's wrong to put a person in a cage like i don't know how much that's going to help you but you know if you want to hear it doesn't actually work then there you go it doesn't actually work. <laughs> <laughs> i'm really, i'm probably getting like too heated at this point <laughs> that's my mic drop right there it's like yes. <laughs> thanks for tuning in to this week's episode you can learn more about the project at grayscalemovement.org, and that's gray with an A. And check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter while you're at it. Talk to you soon. Bye.